0: Welcome back to the bitcoin layer i'm nick batia and today we welcome back max gagliardi max is the founder of ankova energy and we use his expertise from the energy perspective but today we're going to focus on another project of his it's the mountain fork vacations he has a mountain fork uh, property in oklahoma max thanks for coming back to the bitcoin layer
1: Yeah, Nick, thanks for having me on. Enjoy all the work that you guys do and excited to to be back on the show.
0: Today's video is sponsored by River. We are extremely proud to be sponsored by River. It is a Bitcoin-only exchange, somewhere you can go to get allocated. And we love River for a few reasons, but most importantly, River does not use a custodian that is an external party. It uses its own method of multi-signature cold storage so that you and your funds are not exposed to the world of counterparty risk. Now, River even encourages you to get your coins off of the exchange as soon as possible. And they also have lightning network capability so you can get those coins off like that make sure you check out river.com slash TBL. Excellent. So today's episode is about short-term rentals, also known as the Airbnb world. Uh, so Max and his energy firm, uh, he's able to give us a lot of insight into the domestic energy landscape, oil and gas. But today we're focused on his property and his involvement in short-term rentals. So give our audience an overview of what is your property in Oklahoma? What are the economics of it? And just give us maybe a few minute overview of what's going on there.
1: Yeah, so quick background. We, I started dabbling in real estate in 2019. Uh, started out like a lot of folks buying single family homes here and around where I live in Oklahoma City. Uh, they, were, they were profitable. They were, they were great in a lot of ways. There were also a lot of work and it's not as much fun being like a landlord. Uh, so uh, grew that portfolio. Just had like four homes there, and then in 2020, partnered up with some guys that I'd work with in the oil and gas world, and they had some different real estate investors. Uh, a couple of them had some short-term rentals. One guy had some retirement community properties. Anyways, we aggregated assets and started selling off the existing properties uh, to kind of bring capital in and refocus on one strategy. At that same time, we bought a uh, a cabin. People make fun of me for calling it cabins because they're they're typically these larger homes. Uh, Down in an area in uh, southeast Oklahoma called Broken Bow. And then there's like Hocha Town, which is kind of the touristy uh, part of that area. It's right next to a national forest and a state park called Beavers Bend State Park. You've got Broken Bow Lake and you've got a, a really incredible river called the Mountain Fork River. And really just this area is driven like the market's driven from Dallas to North Texas. It's actually a closer drive to Dallas than it is Oklahoma City. It's about a two and a half, three hour drive. And so you've got this giant population center that's looking for kind of these uh, staycations where you only can just get in the car and have a short drive and go visit somewhere. And I think there's something around 18% of the U.S. population is within a five-hour drive of Broken Bow. So although it's like Oklahoma and it seems a little obscure, if you draw kind of a radius around it, there's just a ton of population growth. You've got one of the most diversified economies uh, in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and you've also got just a ton of influx of new people. I mean, I think it's adding a hundred something thousand people a year uh, to that area. And so bought the first cabin and it did really well uh, from a short term rentals perspective. It just was all these visitors. And we had kind of the COVID effect too, where people wanted to get out of the house, but they couldn't get on a plane. And then after about three or four months, when we realized the numbers were real and they were doing Uh, better than we thought it would do. We ended up building one. Uh, It was kind of a builder that we'd found and he had a lot. And so we built one, got it online around probably the end of 2020, early 21. And the first two that we had just did phenomenal. But we also saw that the run up in uh, price was going on in terms of the assets down there, just as like many things were during that time with the money printer and the low interest rates. And so Uh, decided to take the winnings from those and just sell them because it'd gone up so much in value. And so we waited till a year we get long-term capital gains. We sold those two properties and then we had cash come back into the company. We also had finished selling off the other properties in our other portfolios and aggregated it. And so what we wanted to do was get some more scale with the short-term rentals. We also felt like we had learned a lot from the first couple and wanted to apply the things that we've learned. And then we raised a little uh, friends and family private equity fund to go Uh, deploy into a few more cabins. Uh, And the other thing that we found was that building was way cheaper than buying retail. And I'm talking 30 to 40% potentially cheaper than where these homes were being priced at. It's still today. Building is way cheaper, uh, which is counterintuitive in a lot of markets. A lot of times replacement costs are higher Uh, where we're at is uh, it's just, it's cheaper. If you, if you take the time to go upstream and actually get the land and then build, uh, build the home there's a lot of margin there to be made and lowering your cost basis. And so in real estate, I think cost basis is kind of king and uh, in, it's your entry point, right? So I did that. And at the same time, we always just wanted, love the idea of buying raw land. And there was this amazing track on the river, which is a really difficult place to get land. It's uh, mostly everything kind of north of the, of the Highway 70 bridge, which is where the river crosses a major highway, is basically National Forest and State Park. And then everything south of that is a lot of small track owners or you know p- people that have had it for generations that don't don't really sell and so we we're able to get a, a 140 acre property from a from an off-market seller negotiated that deal and bought about a mile of riverfront and we have now been the last year subdividing that and selling those lots off for people to come and build their own homes we, we'd love to build some homes of our own on that property as well the existing properties we have are uh, kind of north of the state park this is south of it so We've branded it all mountain fork vacations uh, just because we love the river in our developments called Mountain Fork Resort but that's where we are today and I'm happy to share you know our my thoughts about the STR market in general, about our market or just any any way you want to take it.
0: Yeah uh, we will we're we're gonna to get into your thoughts on the STR market from a larger perspective but I want to stay with your property for for a few minutes so hundred and forty acres, one mile of riverfront. Property, and I want to talk about the difference between developing the houses to sell them versus developing for the STR market. So, just break down how you're approaching that uh, cost benefit there.
1: So, it's there's a lot of ways to look at it. I mean, I think dividing, subdividing the land, and selling off the lots is a is a great way um, to generate an economic return on the land, and so. It takes some work up front and we're very close. We've got utilities should be finished. Knock on wood here at the end of this year, we're uh, finishing up the trunk lines for the water, the electric and the uh, fiber internet that will be out there. And so the path of least resistance is to, you know, just sell the lots and people come in and they can, you know, build a house on it. There are some covenants of what they can and can't do, but it's it's pretty friendly with the idea being that most of the buyers are either second home buyers or uh, they want to build a cabin to rent it. Uh, For an SCR. I think the interesting thing though is that because the build economics are so favorable right now, even with higher interest rates, um, contractors are getting really hungry. New builds have slowed way down. And so you've got the ability to get a very competitive price on a new built home. And I think that when we look at, especially on our most valuable acreage, which is the waterfront acreage we are we can see the economics and it's like if someone you know you're selling it to somebody they can go build a house well they're they have all this margin that they can make i mean equity kind of day one that if they want to they can rent it out and use it as a vacation rental they can use it as a second home or they could just list it on the market and be extremely price competitive Um, you could basically undercut where most of the listings are in the area and still make a nice profit with it and so part of us is like to use an oil and gas analogy it's like we're selling off our best acreage and we'd rather drill some wells, you know, maybe you don't drill wells on all your best acreage, but you know, that it's, it's really prolific and there's just not much waterfront available. And so we've got these amazing waterfront lots. We've sold off uh, approximately 10 of them and we've got about 14 left. And it's like, man, I just, it's hard for me to want to sell all the best stuff and not hold some of that back. And so I think that there's obviously more capital, uh, which in some ways is more risk. If you go build a house, I mean, to go build a couple houses, um, is the, we you know, is almost the same amount of capital it is to buy the whole project. Right. So it's the capital or the capital for homes is, is, you know, is more, so you're going more risk on, but the fact that you have all these different levers that you can pull, you can rent it. Um, you can list it for below market comps. You've got this really attractive water feature and these really unique lots. And so that's what we're battling with is do we, uh, Continue to sub, you know, sell off what we've subdivided, or at some point do we kind of hold it back and say, "Hey, let's, you know, maybe go raise some capital to go build a few ourselves."
0: So part of the demand economics here is the potential for great STR properties, but where you are in the supply chain is still in the raw land as uh, component there, with again the option to retain, build, either build to sell, build to rent build to short-term rent and so that's kind of where you guys are in in the sector
1: yeah yeah and i think like the further you go upstream think about it this way like if you go and buy a retail property this being listed by an agent there's so many uh pieces of economic rent that have been taken out before then you know someone bought the raw land they subdivided it and they sold it for some multiple on what they had invested in that parcel of land you then have a builder who is building and he's making a margin on the cost of materials and labor to build that home. And then you've got like a listing agent or maybe even a buyer and a seller agent. They're taking anywhere from three to 6%. And so then now you as investor are getting this property. There's been all this economics that have been taken out by these different agents along the way. And so what we tried to do was get as far upstream as we can to basically make our cost basis much lower than what you could do if you were buying retail. And there's obviously more, more work involved with that and more planning and you got to get in up front. but our feelings were just that raw land is valuable. It's scarce. It has, you know, especially where we're at on the water, there's just not much of it. They're not making any more of the river and given the natural barriers to entry, like the state park and the natural forest, which or the national forest, which are just about a mile and a half North of us, you really can't get any closer because you'll never be able to build or buy that acreage. So our thought was secure this scarce asset. And then have it and then it gives us a lot of optionality of what we want to do to monetize that that asset into the future.
0: Okay, Max, so let's now bring it back to the STR market and even the real estate market in general here. So you have a unique perspective. You mentioned that with the slowdown in sales and building that you are seeing more competitive prices from builders as they are looking to secure contracts in a, a weaker environment. So Maybe you can start there. What are you seeing broadly in real estate? Describe the slowdown. How serious is it? Is it regional as we expect from uh, the real estate market or is there something federal you can speak to? And then maybe we can talk about uh, STRs after.
1: I think we've talked about it in the past that all real estate markets are kind of different. I mean, there's a big difference between office and multifamily. There's a big difference between residential homes and short-term rentals. and I think even within those asset classes, you then have the regional specific or the you know the local economics of what's going on. I know that you know the death, for example, of office is out there, and people are very much uh, afraid of that asset class, which I would be too. But I, but I also know that there's still new office buildings getting built or existing buildings getting renovated. And I know some folks that are, have had success even this year in getting buildings leased up. And so I kind of like to caveat everything with, you know, it's an asset class that is extremely diverse and multifaceted, and there's all these different variables that can affect a specific asset. I think what we've seen broadly is that the multifamily side has, has a lot of new apartments that have been starting and they're going to come online, especially in, even in our area. And so we'll see if the rents they can achieve or what they've uh, forecasted. I think again, on the office side, it's kind of the haves and the have nots. I know there's some buildings that are still well occupied and are commanding uh, great rent and even rent increases. But, um, but you know, I think those, those two, I think are struggling more just given the demand uh, that's, or the supply that's come in and then what happened with work from home. I, you know, anecdotally, I'm not involved in all these, so I'll just tell you some of the anecdotal stuff I've heard. I think self-storage has been a little soft. I know that it's very much driven off of uh, the real estate market in terms of residential homes. So the more churn that's going on with residential, I think, helps self-storage because people are moving in and out and they need a place to store their stuff. And so I've heard from some folks and friends of mine that are in that space that it's been slower for them. I mean, obviously, rising interest rates affect all these And I think this is an important point for STRs is that most of these uh, projects or properties have a a net operating income calculation and that is greatly affected by the cost of borrowing. And so your net operating income typically is then uh, translated into what they call a cap rate. And then you look at where cap rates are at and you want those to be above the cost of borrowing. And so as the cost of borrowing goes up in combination, whereas if your rents are coming down it effectively lowers the value that someone would be willing to pay you for that property. And so that is a, uh, it can have a big impact in times like these. The other thing is that guys have redetermined debt that's coming up and they have to switch it to a higher interest rate, which then lowers their net operating income versus what it's been historically. I've heard again, anecdotally that the industrial space is still doing pretty well. i actually went to breakfast with a broker here in town in Oklahoma city that does a lot of work in Texas and Oklahoma Still a lot of deals getting done. He said it's obviously slower. He said that their deal flow is around 30 to 40% less than what he had last year, but there's still deals transacting, and there's still folks getting aggressive for really high quality industrial properties. There's still new industrial properties uh, getting built, and it does seem like there's still a supply shortage, at least in the, in the markets that he was working, which are Texas and uh, kind of the Oklahoma and adjacent states. And so I think that all these markets are going to be impacted by higher rates, But there will be winners and there will be losers as it um, to pivot back to short term rentals. The interesting thing there is that we can get into what's going on in that market. But the nice thing about it is that there are economics and there are also uh, emotional decisions, right? Like if you have a very high net worth person who wants a second home, they know they can rent it. That's great. And maybe they make a little money. But for example, the last home we sold, one of the biggest ones we've ever built was just a cash buyer that came in and he's, you know, hey, I'm a cash buyer. Um, I want this place for me and my family and I want to, uh, and to rent it when we can, that's great, but we'll probably use it a lot. And so the nice thing is that when you're catering to that type of demographic, it's not just numbers alone, the numbers can pencil and that's important, but it's also folks that truly want it as a vacation rental or as a second home. And the, the rental side of it is just kind of the gravy. It's like, they don't need it, but they'll take it if they can get it. And so it gives you more of an exit or more of an opportunity to monetize it's not just based on cap rate and net operating income, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, it does. And so let's talk about then – you talk about winners and losers. Let's focus on where you see weakness, and you can go across sectors. So you say industrial is doing pretty well, um, office not so much, but more localized. Some, some cities are, are doing terribly right now versus others. So what, what are you, where are you seeing the weakness We know rates are high. We know certain loans are resetting. We know it impacts valuations. We know there are going to be some for sales. We also know that there are defaults in commercial real estate loans that are starting to really tick up and uh, enormous uh, write downs on valuations of buildings or actual sale numbers that are coming through that are, you know, 30, 50% markdown. So where are you seeing the weakness? Where do you, ha, do you see recession indicators outright looking across? Talk to us about that.
1: Well, I think the weakness is, and maybe we mentioned this on a prior episode, is really in these COVID states that did a lot of the shutdowns. And also you've got states and areas where prices were just astronomically high and they had been so high. And now that coupled with the work from home phenomenon on the office side, things have really come back down. I think that a lot of industries where you have the ability to work remote. um, So for example, in tech, a lot of the tech uh, side of things, you can essentially have your workers, you know, log in and work remote, maybe more traditional industries where folks were used to being in the office and they're coming back. I know in oil and gas, uh, there's not as much work remote that goes on. A lot of oil and gas companies had their folks back in the office in the summer of, of 2020 and I think there's just kind of that more traditional old school mindset. And I know that there's probably other industries as well. Um, but you know, generally the folks that don't either value that in-person face-to-face time more, or they're more old school industries, or they really have a need for folks to be together face-to-face. Uh, that's where you're seeing office buildings still staying relatively occupied in these industries where it can totally be done remote. And it's more of a culture of remote work. I think you're seeing, uh, the offices being less full and, and also these COVID cities where they had these prolonged shutdowns, you know, in Texas and Oklahoma, it didn't shut down that long. I know a lot of the other Midwestern States uh, as well. And even places like Florida, you know, they were pretty uh, less strict, I guess, when it came to the COVID lockdowns. And so therefore people got back in the office earlier and then folks and companies decided to either extend those leases or, uh, or continue to have people work in those offices. So, That's kind of how I look at it. And I'm not like an expert on which areas are the worst. We see all the tweets uh, about San Francisco and some of these areas, but you know, I look, I think if it's, if it's a COVID type city that really locked down for a long time and it's got workers that have the ability to work remote, then I would be a little on guard. Um, In terms of the, in terms of the winners, there's still big growth areas. I mean, talk about Dallas, you know, the DFW area. I mean, it's just so many people coming in, so many companies moving in such a diverse economy. You know, it's not focused on one sector, right? I mean, when oil and gas is down, you know, Oklahoma takes a big hit because it's a massive piece of our economy. Whereas, you know, in DFW, you've got finance, you've got oil and gas, you've got tech, you've got uh, real estate, you've got all these different industries, um, a lot of manufacturing in, uh, in Texas as well. And so you just have a, you have, it can be spread out more. And then the main thing is like, if you look at, take like the classic example for how to calculate GDP, you've got capital and labor. Well, you've got a ton of capital and a ton of labor in terms of people moving into Texas and some areas like that. And so I think that's going to really help them um, as well. In terms of residential, it doesn't seem like home prices have come down a ton. You know, I mean, they've gotten softer for sure. I think days on the market has extended. But, you know, I mean, like new home builders, at least in our area, are still selling houses. We've got a development coming up right next to my neighborhood, and they've been throwing some homes up and they're selling at at a pretty high price per square foot. So people still need places to live. And especially in areas where there's population growth, I do think that uh, those guys are clearly in a softer environment. But as long as they're smart on the way they manage uh, their capital and their exposure, I still think there's going to be a demand for high-quality residential homes.
0: And what are you seeing in terms of rent? So we know that rent is a huge contributor to the overall inflation metrics. Um, Rents impact the STR economics. They impact the entire real estate sector. So are you seeing rents level off or are they still climbing?
1: I think in places like uh Austin where they got so hot, I think they're leveling off, or even some folks have said on Twitter, at least this is I'm getting my information there, that they've come down some. I know some folks that are doing multifamily developments in Oklahoma and and the and the rents just hadn't exploded like they had in other areas. And so you know, they're still able to get kind of their pro forma rent that they wanted or increase their rents. I still think, uh, from the single family home side, you know, I'm hearing from some folks and friends of mine that own a bunch of single family homes, they're still increasing their rents. It's just right now it's so expensive to buy a house because of the increased borrowing costs that it's forcing people into renting. Well, that gives renters or that gives people that own multi uh, multifamily or rental homes, more pricing power. They can increase that rent and it's still cost competitive with someone going out and taking out a mortgage at a seven or 8% uh, mortgage rate. And so I would look at like the historical growth of what those rents had done. And I keep referencing Oklahoma, I think it's similar to a lot of other Midwestern states. But, you know, even in 2008, like our market didn't crash that hard. I mean, it crashed a little bit, but it, it came back and it, you know, we just we never got to that crazy euphoria of it going up so high that we didn't have as far to fall. And then we just kept kind of this measured pace and growth upwards.
0: So we have to be looking at the more volatile states for um, you know, better indications of how things are turning or uh, tech pockets like Austin uh, for maybe more of a signal from that perspective. And Max, let, let's also talk about, from your perspective, going back to the Mountain Fork property, if you see rates going up and you see activity activity leveling off, and you're hearing anecdotally that demand is softer versus last year, and the economy is clearly having trouble digesting these higher rates. Where are you from now your business uh, CEO perspective, where are you going more conservatively? What are you doing that is different today than... 24 months ago about your attack plans from a business strategy perspective. And we have, you know, we have a lot of business leaders on this show and the business leaders are the ones that are impacting the economy in terms of hiring, firing, investing or saving. So where are you on the balance of investing versus saving as we head into these higher rate environments?
1: Well, I think that we've done a few things the last 24 months. One is we pulled back on plans to build as many homes as we would initially forecasted that we wanted to build. Uh, we probably pulled back 35% on what our initial goal was to do. And there really wasn't anything at the time showing us that that was the right call. In fact, economics were staying I mean, Everything was still kind of booming. But we were worried about the looming increases of, of rates and then the new supply of homes. And so we said, you know what, let's, uh, let's sell off some of the lots that we'd had in our fund and bring cash in uh, onto the balance sheet. The other thing that we did was we sold one of our crown jewel properties that we really, I mean, we got a fantastic return on it, but we, but what it did was it brought in a lot of cash. And at the same time, it was like, Hey, look, this is a big win. You know, the, I'd really have liked to, it'd be nice to just hold some of the best ones for a longer period of time. But ultimately in this environment, when you see a win, you take it because when things get, you know, if there's a recession that may happen, it's like, Hey, you want to be taking the wins as they come. Um, and the other thing we've done just as a business on the real estate side is just hoard cash. I mean, we could redeploy into other projects today, but you know, just being more conservative, we're getting you know around 5% yield on our cash. And so I would say we're very overweight on cash because it just allows you to have the flexibility uh, to be in a position where you can actually earn money on that cash. And then you can also be opportunistic. If there is a good chance to sell a property, that's great. You can sell it, but at the same time, you're not forced to do anything. And I think that all the advice I've gotten from other folks that have been successful in real estate over the years is just always have that cash cushion and have that money available. Number one, it it allows you to have the peace of mind to know that the business isn't on any shaking footing. The other thing is it allows you to be opportunity opportunistic. When those opportunities do come up, you can go and you can, uh, you can go build a new house or go buy a new property. And so those are the main things we've done in that business is really just try to take the wins when they come pull back on activity because, We didn't want to do as much because we knew there could be a slowdown and then also hoard cash rather than just immediately plowing it into into the next project
0: take the other side of it if you are hoarding cash and you are right now in a more conservative zone you're looking for opportunistic investments put your forecasting hat on and tell us when You do plan on deploying some of that capital. How you see this playing out? How bad do you see pockets of real estate getting because of rates? You don't even have to talk about monetary policy and that when you see cuts coming back in, but just because you know from our perspective, that monetary policy is lagging what's going on in the economy. So if the economy goes down, they'll cut rates, but rates will already have come down in the market. Mortgage rates will have come down. And it'll make it'll turn the economics of a certain property from negative to positive before the Fed even got there, right? So without the Fed, without rate cuts, where how do you see the next couple of years playing out from a real estate perspective? Are you looking to deploy that cash within the next couple of years, six, twelve months? How are you thinking about that right now?
1: A couple of thoughts. One is make sure that. You know, I always like to look at cash-on-cash cash returns. If you didn't have to use any leverage, uh, would this project still make sense? Just from an all-cash perspective, obviously, the t- return is going to be lower because the effective leverage can amplify those. And that's one way to look at it. The other way to look at it is, does it make sense at these rates? So if you are going to borrow money, um, d- is this asset going to cash flow? Is this project going to pencil if your borrowing costs are 7 or 8% or whatever they are right now? And so those are two things that I think are important to look at versus, you know, people underwriting things, assuming a 3% borrowing cost. That obviously was a window of time, and now those, the cost of capital is much higher. So just looking at it from an all-cash perspective and as well as a, a leverage perspective under today's rates. In terms of when to deploy, I mean, really, if you can check those boxes and say that this project makes sense given where the borrowing costs are now, And this project would make sense if we didn't have to use leverage at all. Now it's probably not a bad time to deploy in general because real estate's long lead time. So similar to oil and gas and a lot of these mega projects, when prices drop, you know, investment pulls back. And then when things do come back and the cycle does turn, now you've got this lag time before you can uh, have something to market if you start then. And it's cliche and the Bitcoiners talk about it, but it's like the bear markets are for building. It's true and false. I mean, bear markets are being for being conservative because you don't want to get out of your skis. But if you do have quality projects, uh, building in a bear market is a great time because if they pencil, then then they should be able to pencil uh, whenever the cycle turns and things get better. And from our perspective on deploying, we're hyper focused on cost basis. It's like, can I get in? for a cost basis that is much lower than where I feel like retail could be, where it's certainly where it's at currently, where it's been in the past and how much room do I have? What's my competitive advantage? So there's different competitive advantage. It could be your location, which, uh, if you're in other types of commercial real estate, that's a huge deal as well. So where is this located for us? You know, we've got the very rare riverfront property. And so the, the location is advantage. Uh, we've got the cost advantage. And then we've got the advantage of experience and having done it and having made mistakes in the past and understanding what you know what a good short term rental property looks like. And there's lots of nuances around short term rentals; they're not all created equal. Uh, some of them are going to do better than others. I'm happy to go into the things that we've learned about those, but uh, that's how I think about deploying right now.
0: Yeah, and maybe you can. What are some of the things that you've learned uh, just in in a couple years of developing properties that are really the you know a big part of the marketing angle is look at the potential economics on the str front
1: i think there's there's a lot there number one is your lot and picking the lot that you want to build on i think in the past in our market as well as many other short-term rental markets it was undersupplied with rental homes and so you could just have a, a generic lot it could have been a lot in the pine trees it could have been uh, something, for example, if you're in a beach market, it didn't necessarily have to be right on the beach. If you're in a mountain market, it didn't have to be ski and ski out. It didn't have to be the perfect lot. If you just had a property in that market, when things were running up, you probably did okay. Um, in today's market, I would be hyper-focused on location and lot and what features does that lot have to build the house on? Because you can build an amazing house. You can put it in a pool or crazy amenities, but ultimately like the view is the view and the waterfront's the waterfront. And so if your house is over here and it's got uh, these cool amenities, but the house across the street is on waterfront or in a development that has access to water, or if your house is located on a, on a lot that has these incredible views in a tiebreaker, that house with that lot feature is probably going to win because number one, it's going to command more rentals because people want to have that feature. Uh, number two, you're going to be able to command a higher average daily rate because people look at it and they're like, well, you know, I could pay a little less over here, but it's just this random lot with nothing really to it. Or I could get this waterfront lot or these incredible views that are going to look great on Instagram. So that's what everybody wants. And so they want to go and they want to pick that, uh, that better lot. I think in terms of actually the house that you're building, when you go to build it, there's a lot to think about. I mean, I think people get caught up on uh, total square footage and they want to price things on square footage and in residential um you know you can maybe do that and i think in the past with strs you could have probably done that as well today i would very much focus on uh master bedroom count and master bathrooms and so one house that we had the second one that the first one that we built the second house that we got it was like a 4200 square foot but it was four bedrooms and it had a big bunk room and then we had like the second game room area and the second living room and it was awesome and the house did really well And we ended up selling it but like in today's market i wouldn't build that house i would have squeezed in at least another two bedrooms for a house that size i would want it to be six bedrooms each with their own ensuite master bathroom and the reason why is because those are your paying guests right like when people come the people that are writing the you know paying the money typically want their own bedroom and bathroom Uh, another thing that's a mistake is like having this giant master bedroom And it's like, that doesn't really get you anything. Like it's people make this mistake a lot because they go there, the husband and wife, they want to buy this vacation rental and they oh look at this master bedroom. They can envision themselves there. It's like double the size of a normal bedroom. It's got this incredible bathroom. It's just like kind of wasted space. Like that's going to rent for the same amount as a master bedroom that can fit a king size bed, a TV stand and has a nice bathroom. Right. And so really looking at the functionality of your space. Things like game rooms, they're great. People want them. What we're doing now on new builds is we're going to put the game room and make it the bunk room and the game room one space. And so that way it's like, you've got this giant bunk room with all these bunks, but then you've got the game room there too in the hangout area and try to cut down on some of the square footage and still be able to get the sleep count that we want and the master bedroom count uh, that we'd like. And so just being efficient, it doesn't, you know, just because you have a 1200 square foot place, if it's got one bedroom, you probably could add two or three bedrooms in that same house and you just had to alter the floor plan a little bit. And so it's being very focused on those types of things. Uh, and then amenities is the last thing, you know, we, we're not building anything without a swimming pool. And um, that's been huge for us on rentals and we're actually doing heated pools as well. So can kind of get that year round or at least, you know, it extends the season probably from March to October versus uh, you know, maybe the winter months people still wouldn't get in a heated pool, but, And then even on new cabins, we're looking at maybe doing indoor pools, maybe like an indoor outdoor It's kind of got the garage doors that can open up and open up to the outside. But in the winter, it can be shut and you can have a year round pool. You're going to be able to command an average daily rate in those winter months and those off season months that is significantly higher um, than without that amenity. The other thing that we like is bigger homes. Um, I think the smaller houses, they get much more stress on their average daily rates. You look at a smaller house and Let's say your average rental rate is 250 bucks a night on well, the off season. There's only so much you can lower it, right? You get to 150, hundred bucks a night. At some point you're like, is this worth it? The wear and tear and the operating costs of like lowering that nightly rate. And so, whereas these big homes, you know, we may be able to rent it for 2,500 bucks a night in the peak season over 4th of July. And then in its seven bedrooms and it's incredible. It has all this stuff. But then in the winter, you know, we could probably mark it down to a thousand bucks a night or 800 bucks a night. If it's really slow we're still profitable at that rate. Like we have the ability on compression of rates to have such more dynamic range with our pricing because people look at that and they're like, oh my gosh, seven bedrooms for 800, 900 bucks a night. Like they may go rent a week in January during the off season. So, you know, I think having the bigger properties, uh, I think the economics are better. It gives you more dynamic pricing that you can do. And you also get economies on your build costs, right? Because the lot cost, the land is basically a fixed price. And so if you're building, a thousand square foot house that price per square foot just for the parcel of land that you had to buy is going to make up way more of the capital stack and the cost basis versus if you're building a 5,000 square foot house on the same size lot, you're now your price per square foot for the land is much smaller, which gives you even more economics. So just things like that. I mean, there's a ton of them, but that's just some of the stuff that we've learned uh, from doing
0: this. Max Gagliardi, founder of Vancouver energy and newly real estate short-term rental uh, vacation property extraordinaire, uh, as well, Max, we really appreciate your time and breaking down the economics of real estate development, as well as the short-term rental industry. appreciate your time. Make sure to tell people where they can find you and your Oklahoma project.
1: Yeah. If you want to find me, it's a uh, max underscore Gagliardi at Twitter or X, I guess now I said, I'd never call it that, but I guess I will. But, uh, or if you want to find the short-term rental stuff, it's our Instagram handle is uh, at Mountain Fork Resort. And, uh, or you can type in Mountain Fork Vacations at both. They both pull up, but we've got a bunch of really cool videos uh, there that you guys can check out. And there's also links there uh, to book one of the places. If you'd like to book one, or if you're interested in looking at a lot and seeing what uh, you could build, you can go to mountainforkresort.com to book the homes. It's mountainforkvacations.com.
0: Max Gagliardi. Thanks for joining us here at the Bitcoin layer. Thanks, Nick. Make sure you check out river.com slash TBL for all of your Bitcoin exchange needs. We love River and the way they operate. They use their own multi-signature cold storage solution so that your funds are not held on a third-party custodian's balance sheet. Thanks again for checking out the Bitcoin layer. I'm Nick Bhatia. We'll catch you next time.